Uh, I'm wondering if you ever just feel a little bit ripped off in life. You just feel a, a bit ripped off, not so much financially, though some of us, I'm sure, have stories to tell on, on the financial front, uh, but more kind of emotionally or psychologically or, or even spiritually, if, if you believe in that sort of thing, perhaps uh, you feel a little bit ripped off. I mean, life's okay. I'm not saying that life's all bad. There are plenty of uh, wonderful moments in life. Uh, but it, I think that deep down, all of us were kind of hoping for something more. It just feels like there's something missing from life. Sometimes uh, something that, that, that is like life's a one big puzzle and we can never find that final piece to complete it. Uh, and so we're left feeling a little bit ripped off. Uh, it reminds me of this painting. I read about this painting. Uh, these guys hopefully will flick up a painting uh, in a blog uh, a couple of years ago by a guy named Stephen McAlpine, an Australian uh, blogger. Uh, has some really in insightful and helpful things to say. And he was kind of ripping off this blog, uh, uh, this painting called The Opening of the Fifth Seal. Uh, it's painted by a guy named El Greco way back in 1608. I'm not really much of an art buff, uh, but I found his thoughts and reflections on this painting really fascinating. Uh, you can see there uh, in the painting that the Apostle John is there. The, the painting's based on Revelation chapter 6. Maybe it's not a chapter you're very familiar with, but Revelation 6, the Apostle John's uh, looking up to the heavens longingly, and he's surrounded by all the Christian martyrs, right? those who've died for their faith, and they're crying out to God, how long, O Lord? How long until you bring justice finally and set all things right in the world? But of course, as we look at this painting as we've got it today, there's a little bit of irony in the painting. Because even though John's longingly looking up to the heavens, the heavens are no longer there. Right here, sometime in the 1800s, the top 1.5 metres of this painting uh, were ripped off. Uh, so here we've got John kind of longingly looking up to God, uh, asking God along with all the martyrs, God, please do something about the mess in the world. Uh, but the heavens aren't there. Uh, and maybe that's how lots of people in our culture feel. Maybe that's how you feel. You've kind of got this deep longing for something more, maybe uh, something, I don't know what label you'd put on it. Maybe it's something extra beautiful or glorious or transcendent or, or spiritual, something, well, whatever it is. You've got this longing for something more, uh, but every time you feel that longing, you kind of push it away because the dominant story of our culture tells you, don't be stupid. Isn't that true? Don't be stupid. This world is all there is, and the sooner you realize that, the better off you'll be. Just grow up. There's nothing supernatural or spiritual or heavenly or glorious. Just get on with life underneath the heavens. There's no such thing as the heavens. Just grow up. But no matter how many times you hear that message, you just can't shake this sense that there is something more. You feel it every time you, you listen to the opening bars of your favourite piece of music. It just kind of transports you in some way. You feel it whenever you're sitting and you're watching a sunset over the ocean or over a beautiful mountain range. You feel it whenever you finally have the warm embrace of a, a family member or friend that you haven't seen for, all, you know, for, for ages and ages. You get these constant tastes of that something more, but they never last forever. And so you live your life feeling a little bit ripped off, feeling like there's something missing from your life. Now, culture would tell you there's nothing missing. Just suck it up and get on with it. 
But I want to say the Bible says that uh, if you're not a Christian, there is actually something missing from your life and you have every right to feel ripped off. And even if you are a Christian, there's a sense in which you're right to feel a little bit ripped off because at least to some extent, there's something missing from your life too. The thing that's missing is the glory of God. That's what's missing from your life. A full experience of the glory of God. That's what you've always longed for. Now, glory, that's not a word that we use very much these days, is it? Uh, Maybe sometimes you might hear of people going for for premiership glory uh, in the AFL footy or whatever it is. But we don't use it very much. But glory, in this context, the glory of God uh, refers really to the infinite beauty and majesty of who God is. The infinite beauty and majesty of who God is. And the big story of the Bible is that God created us Uh, to uh, share in, to reflect, and and ultimately be satisfied by His glory. Psalm 8, uh, verses 5 to 8 says this. Psalm 8, verses 5 to 8. God made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honour. He made us rulers over the works of His hands. He put everything under our feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, are the birds in the sky and the flesh in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Right, so God made each and every one of us to rule over his creation on his behalf and we were supposed to do that in a way that reflected his glory, that put on display his glory in his world. Like God made each and every one of us to be a little bit like a mirror, Uh, A mirror uh, which uh, clearly is not the sun, uh, but is able to reflect the glory of the sun. uh, Reflect the infinite beauty and majesty of the sun. And that's what every human being is supposed to be like. Clearly not God, but able to share in and reflect the glory of God in his world. To put the glory of God on, on display in God's world. And of course, the problem in the big story of the Bible is though we were created uh, to be like mirrors, we weren't satisfied with being mirrors. Human beings wanted to to make their own glory, to be their own gods, not merely to reflect God's glory. Uh, So we rejected God and we we tried to find our own glories in the people or things of this world. Uh, And that's really where we started back in Romans chapter 1. Remember Romans 1 verse 21 For although they knew God, Paul says, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they did this stupid swap. Right? Verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. I suspect not that many people here will go home tonight and offer up some sacrifices to a literal statue of a bird or an animal or a reptile. Maybe you will. This is particularly relevant for you. But probably not many of us will. But but the, the, the the, the point is that once you make that decision to rip God and his glory out of your life, to reject God's glory, all you're left with is the stuff of this world and yourself. You're there, like just, it's just you and the stuff of this world and instinctively you know you were made for something more than that. You feel it every day. And so you feel horribly ripped off. 
like John in that painting I had, the Apostle John. You long for something more? Are you long not just for the glorious things of this world, as wonderful as they might be, you long for the glory of the God who made this world? And what I want to show you today from these uh, verses from Romans chapter 8 uh, is that if you're a Christian, uh, or indeed if you become a Christian, that longing you have for God's glory is absolutely certain to be satisfied because God in his sovereign hand is guiding you along the pathway to that glory. And that longing you have for God's glory is absolutely certain to be satisfied because God with his sovereign and powerful hand is guiding, has been and is guiding you along the pathway to that glory. So let's look in verse 28. Here we in particular see the certainty of glory. This is how certain it is. Look at verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, uh, who have been called according to his purpose. So Paul says, well, we know, we know this. We live our lives with this daily confidence, Paul says, this deep assurance. But who's the we here? We know. Well, it's a little bit clearer in the original language, which is Greek, because what Paul does in the original language is he takes the end of our verse in English and puts it at the start, or near to the start. So literally it says, we know uh, that for those who love God. So Paul's saying that this, this deep confidence and assurance is for those who love God. This assurance is for Christians. Now, some of you might think that's incredibly arrogant, isn't that exclusive, just to, to have this, this great promise, but, but it's just for, for Christians. Oh, but it's not arrogant at all. Notice that Paul says Christians don't have this love for God uh, because they're somehow better than everyone else. You know, no one here is claiming that. I'm certainly not claiming that. Paul says Christians have this love for God because in his amazing grace, God called them. They're being called according to God's purpose. So Acts 2 verse 21, Peter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And often in your, perhaps in your experience of becoming a Christian, uh, that's what you did, right? You called on the name of the Lord. You trusted in him. You cried out to him to save you. Uh, but here in Romans 8 verse 28, Paul's saying uh, that, that if you did that, and indeed you did call on the name of the Lord, the only reason you did that is because God called you first. By the power of his spirit, by the preaching of his word, God called you. God always makes the first move. He calls us out of our sin and into a life of trusting and following Christ. And he does that completely because of his grace. Paul says he called us according to his purpose. Well, in the end, why is it, if you're here and you're a Christian, in the end, why is it that you're a Christian and someone else isn't? In the end, it's because God purposed that you would be a Christian. God chose you not because you're better than anyone else, not because your religious performance was better or you're a more sacrificial person or you gave more to charity on the, the Good Friday appeal or whatever. God, didn't, doesn't get, God chose you just simply because he wanted to. Pure and unmerited grace. That's what Paul's saying. He chose you according to his purpose. So what is it that we as Christians know? What is it that we can be assured of? That we who love God and have been called by him. Well, Paul says we can be assured that in all things, 
in all things. Right? That's the kind of totality of our experience as human beings. The good things, the bad things, the ugly things. We can be assured that in all things, God is working for our good. Now, it's very important to be clear at this point, isn't it? Clear that Paul is not saying that all things are good. You know, he's not saying put on a happy face and just kind of pretend that everything's good. Oh, this, this depression feels really bad, but it's actually good, right? Because Romans 8, 28. No, 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 that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying all things are good. Right? He's just finished saying in the previous verses that it's very appropriate as we live in this fallen world to grieve and groan at, at, at the suffering that we experience. He's not saying all things are good, but he is saying that God is working through all things to bring about the ultimate good of his people. So God is sovereign over everything. Good things, bad things, ugly things. And that's actually very important. I, I, I have met some Christians uh, over time who basically said, have said to me uh, that uh, good things come from God and bad things come from Satan. That's their basic way of thinking about things. As if God and Satan are kind of two equal powers in the universe. As if God doesn't have authority over Satan. He somehow can't control Satan. Or God only has authority over some things in his world and not other things. But that's not a big biblical view of God at all. The biblical view of God is that he's completely sovereign over everything that happens in his world. There's nothing that is outside of his control. Every good thing and bad thing and ugly thing comes from the sovereign hand of God. And Paul's saying here that in the life of the Christian, God is working through all of those things for your ultimate good. Now, I understand some people find this idea of God's complete sovereignty, right? that, that, that you find that uh, to be a really confronting thing. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you don't, but there, I, I've spoken to people who do find that to be confronting. I kind of like the idea that God only brings good things and not any bad things into our life. Uh, but I actually think it's a very comforting thing to believe this. Uh, it's comforting for two big reasons. Uh, the first reason it's comforting uh, is that no suffering you experience is meaningless. No, nothing you experience in your life is meaningless or random or purposeless. Every bit of suffering you experience comes from the sovereign and loving hand of your God and he's decided that it's for your good. Now that, that doesn't mean that you understand all the reasons why he's decided that. It might be really hard to accept that. But it does mean that no suffering you experience is meaningless or random or purposeless. And that is very comforting. Uh, it's also comforting uh, because it, Paul says you can be assured that God, uh, a sovereign purpose in your life through the good and the bad and the ugly things uh, is for your good. You can be assured of that. Now, I've said this before, and I don't want to harp on this in my own life, but the reality is, I don't know how many years of decent vision I have left. And there's a big part of me that says, God, if you would just listen to me, I could do a whole lot more good work in the world. If you just gave me perfect vision for the rest of my life. But that's from God, right? 
God in his sovereign hand has allowed this genetic condition into my retinas for his sovereign good purposes in my life and in his world. I don't really know why he's done that. But Romans 8.28 says he's going to bring good out of it in my life and he's going to bring glory to himself. So I, I, I trust God's promise. He sent his son to die for me. We'll talk about this next week. right? But, but I know he's good. right? He sent his son to die for me. He's on my side. He's for me. And so I trust that God is indeed working for my good. What is that good? Well, Paul defines it in verse 29. Now, the good destiny that the kind of God's working towards in the life of every Christian is to conform them to the image of his Son. So we talked about Psalm 8, right? Psalm 8, verse 5. God created all of us in his image to, to be like those mirrors that reflect his glory in his world. Uh, and Romans 3, verse 23. We all fall short of God's glory because of our sin. We all lack God's glory. We've got a kind of glory deficit. There's that missing piece in our life. And so God's plan for your ultimate good is to use everything in your life to once again make you fully reflect his glory. To, make you into, to conform you to the glorious image of Christ his Son, who Hebrews 1 verse 3 says is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's God's plan. To make you perfectly like Christ, who is the exact representation of God's glory. Notice what God's plan isn't. His plan isn't that you would have perfect health in your life. It's just not. And his plan isn't that you would have perfect happiness in your life. That's not God's plan, but his plan is that you would have perfect holiness. Not perfect health, not perfect happiness, but perfect holiness. His plan is that you would be made like him. He is the God who is holy, holy, holy. And he's going to make you like himself because you're a child in his family. And you ought to bear the family likeness. And ultimately you will by being conformed to the glorious image of Christ his son. That's his plan. Perfect holiness. And if you're a Christian, he's already started that process. Uh, of making you, uh, of conforming you into Christ's glorious image. So 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 uh, says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, right? where we contemplate the glory of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, Paul says, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. So we already had our eyes open to see the glory of Christ. And God is doing this great work already of conforming us to his glorious image. But he's not done, is he? He's not done. That's why we had last week's passage. He's not done and so we groan at our suffering because our bodies just aren't that glorious yet. There's all sorts of issues with them. We groan at our sin because God's made some progress but we've got a long way to go. We groan at the, the temptations that Satan throws in our path. We groan. We groan at the separation we feel from God. Right? Sure, we've got a taste of the glory and the power of his spirit in our hearts but we long for more. We long to depart and be with Christ, as, as Paul says in Philippians 1. And in verse 28, Paul's assuring us that God is working through all of our groanings, our groanings at, at suffering and sin and Satan and our separation from God. He's working, working through all of that to ultimately bring us to full glory. 
where we'll be free from suffering, free from sin, free from Satan, free from any separation from God, finally seeing him face to face in all his glory and being satisfied in his presence. That's our hope of glory. It's your hope of glory if you're a Christian. And this hope of glory is certain. Why? Because God is sovereign over all things. So nothing can stop him doing what he wants to do in your life. He's not scared of Satan or some world leader or someone. God will work out his purposes in your life. Because he's completely sovereign. Working through all things for your good. So that's the first thing, the certainty of glory. What's the pathway to this glory? Verses 29 and 30. Uh, Look at verse 29 first. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, uh, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Paul's outlining that there's really five stages uh, along the pathway to glory. He starts in this verse and, and a couple in verse 30 as well. So first he says, uh, God foreknew us. Which, of course, it's sort of God knows some stuff in advance. It's not that God knows facts in advance. Like some people are like, oh, I see. God knew which people were more likely to choose him, so he chose them. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that God knew people in advance. Like before they were even in their mother's womb, God knew them personally. So it's like Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, verse 5, where uh, God says to Jeremiah, uh, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You see? God knew Jeremiah before he was even born, and he'd chosen him and set him apart to be a prophet to the nations. Hosea 13, verse 5, God says to Israel, I cared for you in the desert. I knew you in the land of burning heat. So you see the connection between God knowing someone and committing himself to caring for them. That's what he says in Hosea 13 verse 5. He says, I I, I knew you, Israel, so I committed myself to caring for you and working out my good purposes in your life. And that's true of you if you're a Christian. That's what Paul's saying here. Before you were even born, God knew you. He set his affection upon you. And he submitted himself to caring for you throughout your life and working out your good purposes until you ultimately go to be with him in glory. God knows you. He foreknew you. There are plenty of people in our world who feel like nobodies. Uh, Maybe there's someone here who feels like a nobody. You feel valueless, worthless. But if you're a Christian, you're a somebody. Our world says you become a somebody by making something of yourself, doesn't it? You've got to make a name for yourself. You've got to leave a legacy. You've got to make an impression, a statement. If you're a Christian, you're not a somebody because you've made someone of, something of yourself. You're, you're a somebody because the creator of the universe knew you before you were even born. Before you had any runs on the board or any impressive performances, you were a somebody. Simply because the creator of the universe knew you and committed himself to to you. Committed himself to working out his good purposes in your life. It's a wonderful thing to know God's foreknowledge. And we've already seen the purpose for for God uh, knowing you and and he's predestined you to this glorious purpose of conforming you to the image of his son. 
Uh, we won't talk about that as much because we, we talked about that in looking at verse 28. Uh, but it is worth noting, uh, at least, uh, what, does he, uh, what does Paul say? Paul says, God predestined us to be conformed uh, to Christ's image, notice the purpose, in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So you see God's purpose in conforming us, if you're a Christian, to the image of Christ, his Son. We know that Christ is the one and only eternal Son of God. He's completely unique in that regard. But God doesn't want Christ to be an only child. Right? It's a bit radical. He doesn't want Christ to be an only child. Uh, His eternal purpose is to adopt many children into his family, to conform all of them to the glorious image of Christ, so that Christ will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God wants a really big family. Uh, Of course, firstborn there uh, kind of preserves the uniqueness of Christ. Right? Yes, God's going to adopt many of us into his family as his children, But Christ will always be supreme. He'll always be the one and only eternal Son of God. Not an adopted Son, but the one and only eternal Son of God. But that's God's purpose. You know, it's God's purpose. Even though he's focused on you, he's actually focused on the glory of Christ, his Son. He wants wants Christ, his Son, to have many brothers and sisters. And people to be conformed into his image. And then he verse, so that's what we're predestined to, being conformed to the glorious image of Christ for the purpose that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's, so we've had uh, foreknowledge, predestination. In verse 30, Paul goes back a couple of steps. Maybe he sort of thinks, oh, if people are going to be conformed to the image of Christ God's Son, then first they have to be called justified and glorified. So that's what he gets to. And those he predestined, he says, he also called... Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, we talked a little bit about this word call uh, in uh, verse 28. But this, is, this refers to God's work of calling people to himself. He does it through the power of his spirit, uh, through the preaching of his word. Uh, and this is a call that no one can resist. Uh, I think sometimes in our experience, maybe in your life, or maybe you're talking to someone else, and you really feel like you're stubbornly fighting against God. Some people might even give the impression that God kind of wanted to save them, but he couldn't. You know, oh, I was a bit too strong for God. He would have had me over the line into heaven, but you know, like, well, that's not true at all. Right? If God wants to save you, he will. If he wants to call you, you will come to him. Where does the Bible start? It starts with God calling everything into existence by the power of his word. Pretty sure he can call you if he wants to. That's what Paul's saying here. Those whom God foreknew, he knew them, he he chose them for the destiny of being conformed to the image of his son, and then he called them to himself. He called them. And some of you are like, well, maybe that's a little bit oppressive. I don't want a God like that who's going to call me supposedly against my will or something, like I'm stumbling and resisting him. But, you know, Paul says God calls us for our good. Notice what he calls us for. He calls us to be justified. Right? To, to be declared righteous in his sight. To be, declared, to be declared completely innocent in his sight. 
Uh, if you break the law of Australia and you appear in the court of a just judge, I think most of us know that it's only right and fair that you would be convicted of that crime, condemned for that crime, and have to pay the penalty for that crime. That's how a good justice system works. Likewise, if you break God's law, if you refuse to love God as you ought, if you refuse to honour and glorify Him as your Creator as you ought, one day you will appear in His court, and isn't it just right and fair that you should have to pay the penalty for that crime? And the penalty for rejecting God, the source of all life, is indeed death. And here Paul's saying, by using this word justified, that there's a way for us to avoid that penalty. A way for us to be declared innocent in God's court, rather than guilty in his court. To receive life rather than death. How is that possible? It's what Paul's been unpacking so far in the book of Romans. It's only possible because of the cross of Christ. Because on the cross, Christ paid the full penalty for your sins so that when you put your faith in him, there's no condemnation left for you. And so it is fair for God to forgive you. It's just for God to justify you. God is a good judge who punishes sin. But he punishes sin in the death of Christ his son on the cross. Not in your death. Uh, the, the book of the month for DPC, if you go to the Welcome Hub, it's called, Is Forgiveness Really Free? I haven't read the book, actually, but, but I, I hope the answer is, well, it, it's completely free for us, but incredibly costly for Christ. Isn't it? Is forgiveness free? Well, sort of, for you, yeah. So God justifies us through the death of Christ on the cross, through, through faith in his death, uh, and then he glorifies us. In fact, Paul says God has already glorified us, which is a bit confusing, isn't it? Kind of like it seems like glory is the, the thing that we're on the pathway to. That's what we're waiting for. Uh, and yet here Paul speaks as if we've already been glorified. Now we've already seen in 2 Corinthians 3 and other places, there's a sense in which that process of being glorified has already started. Uh, but really what Paul's doing here, uh, he's saying, uh, he's, he's kind of saying that our glorification is so certain that we can speak of it as if it's already happened. Uh, because God is sovereign over all things, we're on the pathway to our glory, uh, and nothing's going to stop God working out his purposes in our life. Uh, and so we may as well say God's already glorified us. So if you think back to verse 17, Paul said there that uh, in the present we do have to share in Christ's sufferings. Here he's saying we can be absolutely certain that in the future we'll share in Christ's glory. We'll be kind of perfectly conformed to his image. Now I understand that that's a little bit abstract, isn't it? I'm sure you came to church today and like, I don't know, like we, we just don't tend to think about being glorified. What would it actually be like to be glorified? And maybe one way to contemplate it is to consider uh, that fear I mentioned a couple of weeks back. Uh, I think we all have this fear that uh, if we had to appear before other people, I mean, this is why people have dreams of being naked in front of other people. Isn't it? I think this is the underlying fear that if we really had to appear before other people and they could see us for who we really are, 
then they would be certain to reject us and kind of cast us out. They'd be certain to judge us. Because they'd be able to see through all the masks and costumes that we put on every day and see all the really ugly and shameful things in our heart, in our life. Uh, So we live with this kind of fear where we live constantly trying to prove ourselves to other people. Uh, And perhaps the train of thought is if other imperfect people uh, are going to respond like that, how's a holy and perfect God going to respond? He's bound to reject us. He can see us for who we really are. Surely when it comes to the crunch on the day of judgment, he's going to see past all our religious facades and judge us. And this truth of glorification says no. No, absolutely not. On the day of judgment, God will inspect you thoroughly from top to bottom and he'll find absolutely no reason to reject you at all. No reason. Every sin has been paid for. Every stain in your life has been removed. Every blemish has been washed clean. Every wrinkle has been ironed out. You've been perfectly conformed to the glorious image of Christ. So not only will God not reject you, he'll reject you, he'll delight in you. Remember at Jesus' baptism, we have baptisms today. At Jesus' baptism, uh, the voice of the Father from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. I'm pleased with him. And if you're a Christian, God not only won't reject you, he'll be pleased with you. He'll delight in you as one of his adopted children, just as he's always been well pleased and delighted in Christ his Son. It's an incredible thing that the one, the creator of all things, who sees all things, could make us so pure and glorious that he wouldn't just keep us at arm's length and not cast us into judgment, but be be thankful for us and, and be pleased with us and delight in us. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a sermon called The Weight of Glory back in 1941. Uh, You should read it. It's not very long. And in it, he reflects on this moment of glorification. Let me read. Uh, He says, It is written that we shall stand before God, shall appear, shall be inspected by God. And the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, uh, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination. Not just survive, but have God's approval. Shall please God. To please God, to to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, pitied, but delighted in. As an artist might delight in his work, or a father might delight in his son, it seems impossible, a sheer weight or burden of glory that's almost impossible for us to believe. But so it is. So it is. Right? That's what you've longed for. This is what you've always longed for. The moment when you appear before God, your heavenly Father, and he not only doesn't reject you, but he welcomes you in here uh, as his dearly loved child. He says, you are my child whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. I delight in you. Right? An eternity, not just of you delighting in God's glory, but him delighting in you. And in how glorious he's made you to be as one who's perfectly conformed to Christ, his son. 
And the good news of these verses in particular is if you're a Christian, this moment of glory is absolutely certain. It's certain not, uh, not because uh, of your performance, your efforts, your ability to hold on to God, uh, but because God is holding on to you with his sovereign hand uh, and he will guide you along every step of this great pathway to glory, never letting you go. Why Jesus says uh, that, that uh, those who the Father has given them are in his hand and no one can snatch them out and he will never let you go until you get to glory. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for this, your word. Uh, We do long for glory. Uh, We long to be with you, uh, to share in and to be satisfied in your glory. Uh, We praise you, Father, for uh, the great assurance in this passage that that, uh, glory, for those who have faith in Christ, uh, that glory is absolutely certain. Uh, and that by your sovereign hand, you will guide us uh, through each and every part uh, of our pathway towards that glory. Uh, We look forward to being with you and seeing you face to face. Uh, In Christ's name we pray. Amen.